Then we print these bulletins so that you can take them home with you and relive the worship experience from morning to evening. And here is a great tool for your devotions and for your Christian life, the hymn that we just sang, which is Isaac Watts' setting of the 23rd Psalm. And it contains one of the most beautiful lines in all of hymnody, no more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. And then notice the title of the tune, which is to the right of the hymn title, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need is the title, and the hymn tune is called Resignation. How many of us need that? If you don't need it now, you will someday. You need to know that the Lord is your shepherd, and you are no longer a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. We're seeing that in this passage before us in Joel chapter 2. We're studying through these minor prophets. If you're new with us, you can find that on page 761 in your Bible. We're going to be looking there at chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. These are little books tucked into the end of the New Testament, and they're old books, 800 or so years before Christ, but clearly present Christ as the coming Redeemer and as the one who is able to take us from being strangers and enemies, as Philip reminded us, and turn us into friends and children. These uh, first two chapters that we've studied so far are hard-hitting. They've been grim. They've been dark. Because the people of God had turned away from him, uh, not so obviously, but they just forgot to thank him. They were taking his gifts for granted. They were enjoying the gifts they were given that made them very comfortable, made their life enjoyable, but they had taken the gifts without acknowledging the giver. They turned their backs on him in in ingratitude, in passivity. God gets their attention by taking everything away from them by these locusts who ate everything in sight. We said that he's done it because he loves them. He turns us away from our idols, away from our loves, because he loves us. You'll notice as we turn to verses 18 and following that, uh, that it has a very different tone about it. Good things are described as happening, but they're not happening yet. How could God turn from this, from this punishment, from this discipline, It is surely because in verses 14 to 17, as we've already studied, there was repentance. In understanding that God is gracious and merciful in verse 13, the priests lead the people to repentance. And not just the ones who are directly responsible, but he says, gather a whole solemn assembly, put together a worship service. In verse 16, bring everybody, children, nursing infants, the bridegroom, make this everybody's preoccupation to turn away from self back to the Lord for healing for our whole land. Certainly an appropriate message for us, Jesus, God, the heavenly Father, through his gift of the Son and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit, remembers us in repentance. What does that look like? What does it look like to live in a constant posture of turning back to the Lord? 
Let's expect to be amazed by the answer to that beginning in verse 18, Joel chapter 2. The Lord became jealous for his land. That is, he became overwhelmingly loving and protective and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come among us, be poured out among us in, in abundance and open our hearts to behold wonderful things in this portion of the gospel, the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> This year, I became aware of a sport I had never seen before. It was absolutely amazing to me. I encountered it in watching the Paralympics, blind downhill skiing. Downhill skiing is terrifying enough to me with sight. But the idea that someone can ski downhill without being able to see it's amazing. How do they do it? They, they, the, in the Paralympic sport, they, they follow a leader. They're connected in their helmets with a Bluetooth microphone and headset. And uh, the lead skier, the one who can see, says flat, down, right, left, guides them all the way through the course. But then this week, I read about an even more amazing sport. Free skiing, blind. Blind, free ski, free ride skiing. Not following a guide, but going down without a guide. Your only guide is at the foot of the mountain who sees the whole course in front of you. The news report I saw on CBS Sports was about Jacob Smith, 15 years old 
whose father Nathan is his guide, his little brother Preston take rides with him as far up as the ski lift will take them and then they have to hike to a higher point, to a higher summit and there he lets him go. His father at the bottom, Nathan guides Jacob, telling him right, left, flat, guides him through the chutes. And his father says, the greatest fear I have is keeping him away from the cliffs. Now, they asked the Jacob Smith, uh, you know, just how much do you trust your dad? And he said, well, enough to go right when he says go right. He didn't say ever that uh, he resented his father's commands. I can't believe my dad is so narrow-minded. He won't let me just ski. He, he, he hinders my creativity and he hinders my liberty by giving me these commands. He never said that. It would be foolish for him to say that. He knows that if he obeys his father, his father has his best interest at heart. He wants life to go well with him, as the writer of Deuteronomy would say about the law. He wants life to go well with him. He doesn't want him to go over the cliff. He wants him to find the most efficient and the fastest way down. He wants him to have the best time. He wants him to thrive. He wants him to flourish. Obedience by faith is a response to love. He trusts his dad. He knows his dad loves him. And because he knows that, he obeys him. Now, the people of God in this text, like us, were disobedient. God had to yank their chain. He had to get their attention. He had to work severe mercies in order to turn them back from their disobedience. But it wasn't because he's trying to protect his pride. He knows that as long as they continue in this self-pursuit, as long as they continue in their selfishness consumed with self, they will only continue to dehumanize themselves. They'll only continue to find difficulty. They'll run to dead ends. They will not live the life, the full life, the flourishing life that he wants them to live. So he brings them back. And now he tells them, here is the response I want you to have. Here is the obedience that will result in your flourishing to gospel commands. That is the gospel, the good news. God in the good news personified in Jesus Christ, that good news incarnated in Jesus Christ comes to them as it comes as he comes to us. And he says, I have two commands for you, two things you must do in living in the good news. One is to fear not and the other is to be glad. Are those two commands that you find burdensome, limiting, an insult to your freedom and your maturity? You, no one in his right mind would say that. Oh, I want to be courageous. I want to be, I want to be happy, you say. Well, then that is the way you obey the gospel. It's what comes in the middle of this passage. Two commands. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad. Fear not and be glad. 
Well, what's involved in in keeping those commands? Three things in obeying the command to fear not. You need to know what is preparational and then what is promised, and you need to know the power of keeping this command. The, The preparation you need to be aware of is the very first step of keeping this command not to be afraid is to keep that command that I reminded the parents of at the baptism. It is to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. The very first command every one of us must keep is to believe on the Lord Jesus alone and be saved. It is to acknowledge that you cannot save yourselves. It is to acknowledge that we will never have enough righteousness to make ourselves good enough for heaven. We'll never be qualified for God's love and his approval. So God had to give his son, had to substitute his son in our place to take that sin and rebellion, the punishment of it. He had to substitute his life in our place in order to live an obedient life on our behalf. And receiving the benefits of that is just this simple. It is to receive them. It is to say, I do not have enough to make myself acceptable to you. Please apply everything that Jesus did to me. Make me your child. Take me from the enemy's camp and make me no longer a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. That's the preparation that is necessary. But then what is the, what is the promise that is necessary in order to keep that command yeah, continually? Not just initially by believing on Jesus, but, but you're going to be afraid again and again and again. As I am, we are constantly, we have constant occasion to be afraid, to be anxious, to shrink back from the challenges in front of us living for Christ. There's no place in the Bible, let me say it positively, every place in the Bible where the Lord tells us to be courageous or to fear not, there is always immediately or in the nearby context, the promise, I am with you. I am with you. When he famously tells Joshua, you're going into the, you're going into the promised land, there are giants there, you're going to have lots of battles. He said, uh, I am with you, Joshua. Do not be afraid, neither be dismayed. I, the Lord your God, am with you, Joshua. He repeats it many times. There are at least 10 occasions in the Bible. I'm sure there are more, but at least 10 major occasions in the Bible in which the people of God are told, fear not, do not be afraid. And the promise of the presence of God is either manifested as with Mary when the angel of God is right there or God speaks that promise. Where is it in this passage? Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Fear not, he says, fear not, fear not, fear not. Fear not, verse 21, 22, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. I am with you. And what power will come from that presence that will enable you not to be afraid? How do you you make use of that power? 
It's one thing to know that God is present with you, but how practically do you transform, translate what you know about God into the practice of the presence of God? We have to look at, the, at Jesus himself for that. Jesus not only came to save us from our sins, he came to show us how to live. He showed us how to live on, the de- on dependence, independence on the Holy Spirit. He showed us how to face our fears specifically. Just think of three of the, what most, must have been the most terrifying experiences of Jesus and how he, he, he put to practice the, the, the presence of God in order to, to defeat those fears. One of them had to be when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. After his baptism, he's led into the wilderness and he's tempted in every category of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Make these stones into bread, throw yourself off the temple and, and, you, and uh, his angels will will bear you up if you're the son of God or bow down to me and I'll save you from suffering. It had to be terrifying in his humanity to think of being thrown off the temple. It had to be terrifying this thought that God possibly could not love him, that God would, was treating him with, with hate by putting him into the wilderness and starving him like that. It had to be terrifying, the temptation to be terrified anyway to think that he he would have to throw himself off the temple and prove finally one way or the other whether God really cared for him in order to bear him up on angels' wings. But Jesus didn't yield to any of those temptations. He defeated them all. And how did he do it? He did it by the presence, practicing the presence of God. You say, no, I know how he did it. He did it by quoting scripture. You're right. That is practicing the presence of God. That's what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 30. Paul makes use of this as well. Deuteronomy 30 verse 14, the the word is as near as your mouth. It's as near as your heart. In other words, when you you claim a promise of God, when you recall Scripture, it is the same thing as God showing up, being with you. God's word is never spoken except Jesus is speaking it. So when, when Jesus recalled that his father said that, uh, by, that uh, you must uh, not have any bread alone but my word or when you must not worship any man before me or I have spoken over you that you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased When when he recalls those scriptures, he is recalling that the Father is speaking those things to him right there. So to to practice the presence of God is to recall scripture. Now, what's another terrifying experience? Another terrifying experience that Jesus had was one shortly thereafter when he announced his Messiahship in the temple or the synagogue. And he said, uh, the word is fulfilled in your midst, Isaiah 61. I've come to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind and so forth. And, and, and the Bible says that the people, the people in the church, the, the Jewish people in the congregation were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his preaching. 
until he said this. He said, and yet, were there not many widows in Zarephath? But Elijah multiplied provision. Were there not many widows in Israel, but in Zarephath, in the Gentile territory, in Zarephath, Elijah multiplied provisions for that widow. And then he recalls Elisha. Were there not many Israelites who suffered from leprosy, and yet God chose to take his good news, the gospel, to a Syrian named Naaman? And he brought those, he brought those foreigners into church. Oh, when he said that God's love could be outside of ethnic Israel, that was over the line. He had touched the third rail and they dragged him from the synagogue and they were going to throw him over the cliff. What did Jesus do? He remembered his mission. He did not succumb to their intimidation, but he turned and he walked through them. How do we apply that? We recall scripture, yes, and then we march toward, we live out the calling that God has given to us. We obey what he has called us to do regardless of who rejects us, regardless of who tries to intimidate us, regardless of who humiliates us. We keep his calling. No failure of nerve among those who bear the cross of Jesus Christ. What was the third most terrifying thing in Jesus a third terrifying thing in Jesus' experience. Surely it was his battle with the devil as he's facing death on the cross. And what do we see Jesus doing? Both in the garden and on the cross, he cries out to God, help me. And God answers. He sends him comfort. Nobody else could see it. Nobody else could see the angel. Nobody else could see the Holy Spirit. But God comforted him, comforted him. That's practically how we put into, play, into practice the presence of God. We recall Scripture's promises by being filled up and armored with his promises. We go forward in the calling he has given to us, the calling of whatever he has put in front of us. And we don't pretend that we're not afraid. We don't pretend that we're inherently, naturally courageous. We cry out to God. Yes, I believe you. I believe your promises. But please, oh God, help me. He says, you draw near to me. I will draw near to you. Jill Briscoe is a famous speaker and author. Her husband was as well. And Jill Briscoe remembers as a little girl being in, uh, living through World War II. She was six years old when the Germans were bombing London. Her father took her family and they went hundreds of miles or many miles away into the Lake District, north and northern part of, the, of uh, England. 
to find refuge. And there they were. It was, it was, uh, it was completely peaceful. Except that one day there was, a, there was a driving rainstorm and she was terrified of storms. She, had, she was just a little girl. She didn't have enough understanding to know that there was a far greater storm encompassing the world than the one that was in that little section of the Lake District. But she was afraid of that storm. And her father, who was at peace, reading his newspaper, being a good father, looked over his glasses one day, over his paper, and he saw that his little girl was afraid. And he said... Jump up here, honey. Come into daddy's arms. She, he wrapped her up. And she said, what a grand place to be. What a grand place to be in my daddy's arms. It was as if the storm disappeared. What a grand place it is to be in the arms of the Heavenly Father. What a grand place to be it is to be in the, in the presence of Jesus Christ who said, I will not leave you comfortless or alone. I will send the Holy Spirit. I am always with you. Remember that through promises of Scripture. Put it into practice as you carry out the calling God has given you and cry out to him continually. It's a, it's a command to put the gospel into practice by fearing not. And the second command is be glad. Be glad. How could we possibly be glad? How could these, pos- how could these people possibly be glad? They're called to do this before new crops have arisen. They're called to do this before grain and wine and oil are restored. The promise is that healing is going to come because they have turned back to him. But he calls them not to be fearful. He calls them to be glad even while it is counterintuitive. Even while the circumstances are anything but reason to give rejoice. Be glad by faith. Why? The Lord allows us to ask those questions. But he answers every one of them. And the answer comes in verse 27 in particular. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You know, the more you study Scripture, the more words, single words or phrases will will be catalysts for you remembering giant theological concepts. You, you, you know this already. There are phrases that set your mind into motion. Amazing grace, I could say, and you would say, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Once was lost. If I said, great is thy faithfulness, you would say, oh God, my Father, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Jesus loves you. This I know. The Bible tells me those are catalysts for, and similarly, whenever you read, I am the Lord your God, it should be a catalyst for you to remember you have absolutely everything you need to be obedient and even to be glad, to be joyful in your heart even while you're crying with a, with a broken heart. 
How so? I've referred last week to our shorter catechism that's in the back of the, the pew Bible, I mean the, uh, the hymnal. And in the shorter catechism, and I have a little copy I, I have with me all the time. In the shorter catechism, there is a question about the moral law, question number 43. And it asks this question, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? Before it gets into, you shall have no other gods before me, no, make no graven images and so forth. Before, it gives, before God gave the, the people of Israel any command, he said, I want you to remember this. I, remember, I want you to remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery, so forth. So our catechism asks, what does that preface teach us? And the answer is, the catechism, the preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord, because he is our God, and because he is the Redeemer, we must obey all his commands. How do those three things motivate the commands? Well, think about it. When you remember that God is the Lord, that he is sovereign, you remember that he is the provider of all good things. You remember that he provides all good things that we may seek him, as Acts 17 says. When you remember that God is the Lord, it puts all of life in perspective. It puts all of life's needs in perspective. My God is my Lord. My Father in heaven knows my needs. That's how he tells me to be anxious for nothing because he knows my needs. Be anxious for nothing because the one who provides food for the ravens and, and, and clothing for the lilies is the one who will provide all of your needs for food, shelter, and clothing. Be not afraid. I am the Lord. And then be not afraid, be glad, because I am your God. That's his covenant-keeping name. Not only am I God and sovereign over all things and created all things, I am the God who has revealed myself to be, as we learned in verse 13, full of grace and mercy and forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin and keeping loving kindness for thousands of generations. I am the gracious God, in other words. I'm not just God. I am your gracious God proving it, having proven it in the gift of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in him that you shall be in need of and my supply for you will be more than you need. He doesn't say, I mean, no, it says in our text that we will be satisfied, but he also indicates that we will be, that they will be more than satisfied. And that's the way God acts throughout the Bible. He not only gave them bread in the wilderness, he gave them bread sweetened with honey. He not only gave them a trickle of water, he gave them flowing streams of water. Jesus not only multiplied enough bread to feed the 5,000, but they had basketfuls left over. He gave more than enough wine, and it was the best wine. God is your covenant God. He is your Father. He loves you abundantly. The story of the, of the son who returns is not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of a prodigal God. 
who said, don't say a word, I'm throwing a party for you. I am the Lord, your God, your Redeemer. Verses 19 to 27, he says, I will be your Redeemer in such a way that you will never again be ashamed. You will not be reproached among the nations. You will not be ashamed. Now, that's an important word for Southerners, isn't it? Because as we said last week, we fear embarrassment among our peers more than we fear offending God by our sin. We can trip lackadaisically into confession of sin before God because we can presume on Him that that's His job, but we would rather die than anyone know something embarrassing about us, even if it's not important to God. So you say, how in the world? If that is my great shame. And, and, and pastor, I'm, I'm not just ashamed that my child didn't make it into a certain college or I don't live in a certain place or I come from the, I come from, uh, the, the, the wrong part of the country. Or, I'm not just ashamed. of. I'm, I have sinned a sin that I should be ashamed of. That, I, that I'm terrified for anybody to know, or I think they do know, and I, am, I, I slink around, I shrink, I, I can't even darken the door of the church because I'm so embarrassed. How can you say to me, how can the Bible say to me that God is, I get that he's my Lord, I get that he's gracious, but how can he tell me that I will never be ashamed? Because he's the only one who has the right to shame you. And because he has substituted for you everything that you need for acquittal before his bar of justice, you cannot be shamed by him. He cannot be ashamed of you because he cannot be ashamed of his son and you're in his son. Ah, but how does that relieve me of my own shame, my own feeling of shame? It must relieve you in this way. You don't have a right to be ashamed of yourself because you've never been righteous enough to have any reason or claim to shame yourself. Only someone who is righteous and holy and has never done anything wrong, never uh, wandered from the law at all, o- only one who is as perfect, as impeccable as Jesus has the right to shame you, that means you don't have the right. Well, what about my embarrassment in society? What about my embarrassment among other people I've left down, let down? What about how do I deal with their shame? Remember that they don't have the right to judge you either. They don't have the right to be ashamed of you. Well, they can make you feel bad. They can tell you that they're embarrassed of you. They can tell you that they're ashamed of you. But if they point one finger at you, they're pointing three fingers back. Can they really stand before, the, before a holy God and say, with you on your throne, O holy God, I am ashamed of this poor sinner? So there will be pain in this life, yes. There can be embarrassment. There can be consequences of your sin. 
But when you are practicing your faith and remembering that he is the Lord your God who relieves you of all your shame, you can live gladly. This is Father's Day. As you know, we don't let Hallmark dictate our church calendar, but we use such things as teaching tools. It's also Juneteenth. June 19, 1865, emancipation was declared to the last state still holding slaves, even though it was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. The states refused to free their slaves until uh, federal officers would come in person and read the Declaration and free them. And so many black brothers and sisters throughout our country for, the, for 150 years have celebrated this day. As you know, things did not immediately get better for our black brothers and sisters. And it was the faith of those black Christians in a God who was their Lord, who was their God, who was their, was their Redeemer that enabled them to persevere, remembering that they were citizens of another country even if this one was rejecting them. And they lived by a triumphant faith. One of the songs that emerged out of that struggle, one of the poems was one by James Weldon Johnson that's in our hymnal, hymn number 504, Lift Every Voice. James Weldon Johnson was the, was the principal of an of an African-American private school in Jacksonville, Florida, and his students came. They wanted to, him to write a poem celebrating Abraham Lincoln's birthday. But Johnson didn't feel comfortable writing a poem celebrating Abraham Lincoln's birthday because he felt it was wrong to bring all of the honor for emancipation to a man when it really belonged to God. To pretend that a man was the reason they were freed and that instead of honoring God's faithfulness to his promises as his people clung to him as the Lord their God. So he wrote another poem instead, Lift Every Voice. His brother Rosamond set it to music. And then they had the goal of teaching the 500 kids of the school to sing it for the community and they sang it. One year later, fire broke out in a mattress factory in James Weldon Johnson's uh, part of Jacksonville in La Villa. And as he was running back to his house, he was facing hundreds and hundreds of people running for shelter. And he recorded it in his journal. I see people one after another running for shelter. They say the mattress factory caught on fire. And they tell me that the firemen refused to protect the rest of the black citizens' houses. Instead, they're putting all of their hoses and firefighting abilities on a few low clapboard houses on the other side of the factory owned by a white man named Steve Melton. They didn't save those houses either. Seven miles of Jackson burned down. 10,000 African-Americans were left homeless. James and his brother Rosamond and their families realized their 
lives were not valued there, so they, with many, many others, migrated to the north, they as far as New York and all points in between. But along with them, they took that hymn. They sang it everywhere they went. They taught their relatives, their aunts and uncles, their grandparents. They taught their parents. Those kids, those 500 kids taught that hymn everywhere they went to the point that it was sung across America. And the international church of Jesus Christ has learned from that hymn and from that struggle what it is to obey the gospel of hope when it seems hopeless. From that hymn, from that struggle, Christians everywhere may learn what it is to fear not and to be glad knowing that we are citizens of another country, that we are going to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And no, no weapon formed against us can stand. So let it be our first act this day, perhaps, of obedience to the gospel by singing that hymn in conclusion. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, please take your word and root it deeply in our hearts. And may we be courageous soldiers for Christ. And may we be defiantly joyful even as we press toward the hope, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, who promises to triumph all over all of his and all our enemies in Jesus' name. Amen.